Steven Samco's injury ramification. So who do you have coming out of the All East, All right, Jeff? stop it. Stop, stop. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is March 3rd, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hi, Sarah. Welcome back. It's it good was, to be back. Uh, it, you know, it, it, we, we made do with Chad last week, but I do have to say it's good to have you back uh, in the hosting chair. We won't be talking about hockey today, guys. Sorry. I mean... I thought we had become a hockey podcast. Yeah, I don't understand what happened. I'm gone for one week, and that transpired. <laughs> On the line from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Sarah. Welcome back. We didn't talk about hockey that much, did we? Two whole segments about hockey. Well, one was sort of about hockey. I mean, it also touched <laughs> on some other stuff. Well, Jeff, we love hockey so much that for us, it just didn't even feel like that much. <laughs> yeah, it just felt like normal conversation. Also, I had a question. Chad called me a Sherpa. I listened to that and went, huh, okay. What was the context? <laughs> that I am the Sherpa of Hot oh, Takedown? It was not about mountaineering. No. Yeah, it's because no. you're you're our guide and you, you take us up the mountain each week. Whereas <laughs> I, ne- I don't bring enough oxygen. I need to be carried. I need my rope set up in advance. Jeff, you're the you're like the um, the character the the woman that was doing like the live NBC TV hits from Everest and had to have like yeah. a generator brought with her in John Krakauer's Into Thin Air. Yeah, I have I have no business being on top of the mountain. I shouldn't be up there, but I, I'll be there because of you. I think it's a great analogy. <laughs> wow. That seems like a lot to put on my shoulders. I just want to. It say. is. That's yeah. a big burden. Wait, what character are you in this? plot neil i'm probably like the the austrian guy that like dies on the mountain <laughs> wait jeff doesn't have enough oxygen and you die <laughs> i'm a terrible sherpa hey you know don't blame the sherpas. all that matters is is you just you're right exactly don't blame the sherpas it's not, it's not their, their fault, fault it's that on a bunch you guys. of unqualified people are These going up jerks everest want to climb everest unprepared they're just checking off a box they leave their garbage up well there. i'm glad that i'm back from vacation and we're off the rails immediately <laughs> shout out to green boots Okay. (laughs) R.I.P. On today's show, we'll take a look at the chaos in men's college basketball ahead of March Madness. We'll look at the rookies making a mark in the NBA and what our Raptor metric thinks about them. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. March Madness is nearly here. Before the brackets are finalized on Selection Sunday, otherwise known as March 15th, we wanted to break down what has been going on in this rather unconventional season of men's college basketball. There have been seven different teams ranked as number one by the AP poll, and we suspect a lot of the names in contention for number one seeds in the tournament might surprise you. So does the lack of a clear frontrunner mean it's anybody's game, or is this chaos overhyped? Dan Dockich on ESPN's Courtside Podcast certainly thinks the field is wide open. This is the dumbest conversation that is currently going on TV right now, and we all participate in it. Who can make the Final Four? Well, I'm going to tell you. If you've paid attention to college basketball at all over the last 10 to 15 years, everybody can make the Final Four. Let's break down whether Dockich's frustration is warranted. 
Jeff, does everybody really have a chance at the Final Four? Within reason. I think for starters, you have to be in the tournament. That'll help. <laughs> Such a good point. You know, so this, is, this is what I'm talking that about. That is the kind this of analysis we of expect stuff. from Hot Takedown. But no, I, like the last few years, actually last year was surprisingly chalky um, with all sort of, you know, five seeds and aboves making it. But, you know, Loyola two years ago, South Carolina three years ago, Syracuse out of nowhere as a 10 seed four years ago. There, there's almost every year there's a... There, a seed that's you know higher than seven it seems except for last year um making a run so in in some ways he's right i I think you can still you know safely cross off that 13 to 16 range i mean only four 11 seeds have ever made the final four and no seed worse than that has ever made the final four so if you're seeded 12 history is not on your side history is definitely on your side to have a very good shot to win a game or a, a couple get to the second weekend but no i mean i look i you know bracketology and i'm sure we'll talk about this i think it makes sense to have some risk but to not get crazy or do anything like that because there's still even if you pick an 11 seed there's four of them it's hard to tell which one is going to be the one and and you know if you look at the last few years there isn't like a straight profile for these teams you have you know south carolina texas tech loyola some of these teams that have made runs have had great defenses and then you've had these teams you know out of nowhere with these incredible offense it's not like there's a profile like you know it's the defensive teams that make it or the offensive teams that make it or the balance teams that make it yeah that used to be the case right i mean you could kind of identify these teams especially during like the vcu heyday where there were like a trapping defense and you know shooting a lot of threes those are the types of teams that could be cinderellas but i think you're right it does seem like there's less of a sort of easy to figure out pattern to who does the the cinderella running these days last year is a perfect example auburn was a lights out offensive team with you know i think going into that tournament they had the 83rd best defense and they made the final four so it's sort of and then you look at the flip side last year with texas tech which had by ken palm the best defense going into the tournament they made the final so there's no I, i wouldn't dwell too much on that i mean i think you don't want a team that has a glaring huge weakness like a a top defense and a 200th best offense but (laughs) those teams often don't even make the tournament and it's funny that you mention Auburn and Texas Tech because those are also examples of schools that really aren't always powerhouses you know far from it especially in uh, this century and you know, seeing them, that would that used to be kind of a rule that you could make a little bit of saying like, well, if it's not a mid-major, if it's one of these major conference schools that doesn't always have a history of going deep into the tournament, then you could be a little more skeptical of them. Uh, but even that has kind of been eradicated. And I suspect this year with so many weird random schools uh, rising to the top of the rankings, you're going to have to make a choice about a lot of different non-traditional power schools. And that seems to be sort of maybe adding to the hysteria. I mean, so many teams are having surprise seasons. Many established programs are having 
terrible seasons or mediocre anyway. Oh, you mean it's not weird that North Carolina stinks and Dayton is uh, <laughs> the sixth best team in the country? I mean, I love it. Don't get me wrong. Is that sort of why people are like, oh, chaos, everything is up in the air because we're kind of missing some of those blue bloods? Well, season? yeah, I think that's part of it. I mean, it has to do with a couple factors. First of all, there was that stretch early in the season where like anyone who was ranked number one just lost. Immediately. Immediately. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there have been seasons like that before, uh, but this is right up there with the all-time kind of chaotic seasons for for top teams. And then, yeah, the kind of cream that rose to the to the top by now by the start of conference tournaments are a lot of like incredibly bizarre teams. Baylor, you know, San Diego State, uh, San Diego State has had good seasons in the past, but they they are not a traditional powerhouse by any means. Dayton, you got Maryland kind of being good for the first time in a long time, BYU, Houston, Seton Hall. Surprisingly, Creighton hasn't always ranked really all that highly in the Ken Pomeroy ra- uh, rankings, um, and they're number 18 right now. And then Penn State rounds out the top 20 in, in Pomeroy. So these are not schools that we think of as being perennial powerhouses. And they're also sort of like, again, they don't fit that profile of, oh, it's like a mid-major that is on the rise and we can kind of take them seriously. More often, it's like Penn State, who's usually like a doormat in a power conference. Uh, and, and um, you know, uh, some other teams also fit that profile. So yeah, I don't know what to do with these teams. It's also unusual just to not have, I mean, if you look at Bracket Matrix right now, there's no well, Florida State now has moved into it too, but for for a while there, there was no ACC team in the top two seed lines, which is unthinkable um, in the past when you had Duke and North Carolina and more recently Virginia just as fixtures. Um, so that I think adds to it. But that being said, there are a lot of these sort of blue bloods hovering around the three and four seed line range. You know, Kentucky, Michigan State. Villanova, Duke, etc. So they they haven't all disappeared. And I wonder if, you know, uh, Sarah, you notably disagree with this, but we've talked before about the research that shows that something like the preseason poll and, and even sort of the pedigree of a program can have predictive value once you get into the NCAA tournament. Uh, and on the flip side, teams that sort of come out of nowhere and don't have any kind of pedigree tend to underperform relative to even, you know, their in-season performance. Are you so, telling me my Dayton pick to win it all is a bad pick? <laughs> well, that's what I'm kind of uh, thinking out loud about is the idea that that's just another reason why you sort of have to be wary about those pedigreed teams that are hovering around, like you mentioned, Jeff, the like four seed line type teams. Maybe those are the teams that are going to be the the ones that you kind of call outside the chalk, outside the top few seeds, have them go to the final four, maybe. Keep an eye on those teams, maybe. I did see on March 1st, someone tweet, it's Izzo season. And I rolled my eyes and then thought, yeah, probably that's true. <laughs> well, that's is. a great example. <laughs> yeah, that's like the canonical, like, you know, example of a team that doesn't always do all that great during the regular season and then gets in as like a, you know, five seed. And then wins it And all. then wins yeah. it. Or, uh, you know, makes the final four. They'll like make the final four and then and lose to like you know some superior talent Duke Kansas, team or, yeah. Kansas <laughs> or something in the final four we've seen this with Calipari's teams as well I mean because if you look at a, a program that's obviously leans heavily on the one and dones and I think this Kentucky team will have like three first rounders possibly 
they get off to slow starts. You know, they get that high preseason ranking because of their, you know, on paper talent with their recruiting class, but it takes a while to gel. And this Kentucky team in particular, which is playing really well right now, and I think is projected to be like a three seed, lost to Evansville. If you look at yeah. that loss is unbelievable. Evansville right <laughs> now, for the record, is nine and twenty two. Yeah, they went 0-18 in the Valley, in the Missouri Valley, <laughs> in the Missouri after Valley. beating Kentucky. I mean, they're not even a, they're a bad Missouri Valley Conference team. So that loss is unbelievable. But then you look at Kentucky and they really only have, they have two losses in 2020 to decent teams and, and they've won a bunch in a row and they're, they're obviously like starting to gel. And I think, you know, with all that talent coming together at this time of the year, yeah, you, you have to pay attention. We have a story today on the site, 538.com, about Kentucky talking about that, the, the change they made from November now. And we quote, um, Kentucky guard Emmanuel Quickly, who said in November after that game, all of Coach Cal's teams get better at the end of the year, which is like some nice foreshadowing. That's yeah. good. I like Although that. Although it yeah. could be like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You're just like, yeah, we are we always do this, even though we, we have literally no connection whatsoever to the previous iterations of freshman classes right. that also, also flipped the switch. Kentucky always loses as a top-ranked team to a team like Evansville. No, that's not true. <laughs> that's not true. It was still a pretty bad loss. But it is interesting to see how they've they've come on. And so, I mean, yeah, I think the thing about the predictive power of preseason rankings, I, I there is obviously something to that that doesn't stop me from wanting these less heralded schools to finally break through. I mean, Gonzaga, you know, Gonzaga has been good for a long time. They're not the mid-major Cinderella that we used to think of them as, but it's still, they're number two right now, and it's still like, oh, right, Gonzaga. But, like, they could, this could be their year. They've it been. Could be. I mean, this could be set up for, like, perfectly for them yeah. to finally have that breakthrough for the championship, at least. Yeah. I mean, you'd assume that their path will be a little bit easier, given the kind of topsy-turvy nature of of the rest of the field. But like, what, is it more surprising this year that those, those Blue Bloods have been underperforming? Or are we more interested in the teams that are overperforming? Are, are we more interested in the surprise teams right now? Well, I think naturally we're more interested in the story of the teams that haven't been here in a while, uh, in the case of Dayton, since what, 1950. 60 something or 50 something yeah, they, they made the championship yeah. um so i think those naturally are going to draw our attention because we love the, like one of the fundamental things that we love about the NCAA tournament is the underdog stories but the other side of that is do we have to feel less confident in them and feel like we're going to get our hearts broken like normally the cinderellas are there for us to just take a chance on and if they pan out, then it feels extra great to have, have picked them or rooted for them. But now we're in this weird position where teams are like both Cinderella's and favorites <laughs> yeah. because they've had great seasons uh, kind of out of nowhere. And that's weird. I think that's what makes this one of the stranger seasons. I yeah, think, maybe that's of. right. Maybe it's just that like the narrative doesn't really make sense and we don't know how to like deal with that a little bit. Because Dayton at number three is surprising. We can't call Gonzaga a Cinderella at all anymore. I mean, this was sort of happening. No, no I agree. They've with, graduated with, with, past this that. Was, but this was happening a few years ago at Wichita State, where they were like one of the, you know, they were a one seed. They were one of the best teams in the country. And, you know, you can't, I, I still think it's the seed line that defines Cinderella. 
Unless it's like a Kentucky at an eight seed, and that you know that doesn't really that doesn't really qualify. <laughs> <laughs> well, if that can be true, though, if if you can have that situation where like a blue blood has a has a low seed and they're not considered Cinderellas, then shouldn't it, the opposite also be true that you can have a school, you know, like a Dayton that will have a high seed, but they're not a traditional power, and they still could be at least sort of Cinderella-y. How we perceive these teams does really like shape how we think the tournament is going to go and you know how we pick our brackets and all that. But we still go back to this like the preseason rankings are so predictive and the preseason rankings are full of blue bloods. They're not they don't have Dayton featured prominently. Because the preseason rankings look at what they're working with. I mean they're they're just going on like mainly talent on paper and recruiting and in a sport where it's the blue bloods that get the top NBA caliber one and dones, of course they're going to go up. Whereas, you know, if you're not working with any anything on the court that you've seen, it's hard to just throw Dayton up there as like you know a top five team. I, I don't mean to sound like a AP poll apologist, but it, it makes sense. It's logical. It's a weird position to take anyway. <laughs> An AP poll apologist. <laughs> no. I prefer the coach's poll. <laughs> yeah, right. Anyway, um, no, I'm with you on that. I think the other interesting thing about this season, though, is to your point about recruiting, that there is this sort of dearth of freshmen. You know, there's no Zion Williamson. There's no John Morant. I guess he was a sophomore last year. But these young, you know, kind of up and coming NBA talents, they're either like, you know, in the case of LaMelo Ball, RJ Hampton, they're not even playing college basketball. They're playing pro overseas. You got James Wiseman, who, uh, according to the recruiting services consensus index, the RSCI that you can find at Sports Reference, James Wiseman was the number one freshman in the country. And we talked in a previous episode about what happened to him, Memphis, the recruiting violation, and ultimately only playing three games for them. And then you have other people like Cole Anthony of UNC that like played well, but he's not going to be on uh, a team that makes the tournament. And he was hurt. Uh, and so I think that's also playing a big role is that normally you can just look at these freshmen and know as one and dones that, you know, they're going to make an impact and, and boost a blue blood's potential to go deep in the tournament come March. But now it's sort of like who on that list, you know, Vernon Carey is probably the highest one that will make an impact in the NCAA tournament probably with so, Duke. So does that mean that we think that we'll see more schools with, you know, seniors – go farther in the tournament or do we think there'll be a you know a freshman would be one and done kind of guy come out of nowhere and lead his team to glory I, I think the last few years have shown that that model the the former is more reliable in terms of like identifying a winner we saw that with Virginia we saw that with both of Jay Wright's teams that won uh, for Villanova, they weren't, you know, loaded up with NBA players. They were often guys with a lot of experience who played together for a while and who've also played in the tournament before. I think those things, you know, when you're putting together your bracket can't be ignored. Picking your tournament based on who has the, the most NBA or potential NBA players is, is not going to work. As the NBA pipeline sort of continues to evolve and maybe more players will skip college, is this the kind of thing that we can expect more of the kind of classic teams, maybe not being at the top of the rankings and other teams kind of bubbling up. 
Maybe. I mean, yeah, the the fact that the NCAA seems to be sort of losing its grip on the monopoly that it has over NBA prospects has to bode well for teams that have a lot of seniors and experience and, you know, kind of can call on something other than just piling on the top recruits and having the one and dones and trying. And to be honest, aside from that Anthony Davis Kentucky team and maybe a few other examples, it hasn't always even worked, you know, during what we would consider the the prime era of the one and dones, you know, in terms of getting the top guys and instantly winning the championship. Most of the time, those teams kind of flame out, you know, to to great fanfare. Even Duke last year, which was maybe the most one and done laden team ever, talent wise, was upset in the tournament. So yeah, I, I think that has also caused people to kind of question the model to begin with. And then the model is being upended by just fewer of these players being available to you. The one-and-done laden teams, while you're right, they haven't had great tournament success in terms of winning the tournament and going to the Final Four even often, but they usually are there and they usually do well in the regular season and they usually have these seasons where they you know, start slow and they come on strong and they, they play really well in conference play. But the interesting thing that happened this year was, I think, and if this trend continues, then I think we will see fewer of these blue bloods go into the tournament every year, was that the top three recruits went to respectively Memphis, Washington, and Georgia, which big schools, obviously, but not not Duke, not North Carolina, not Kansas. If that continues where you're seeing it like it's not just, you know, Kentucky and Duke fighting for the top um, high school players and they're going to these sort of alternative school alternative schools georgia uh, but still you know it's not I like but you know what i mean um right. not yeah. <laughs> basketball schools per se then yeah then i think you will see it which teams do you guys have your eye on i am gonna be the boring chalkmeister Are you picking here kansas i i think kansas oh, oh god i know i hate to say it i hate to say it but if you do think about all the things that we just talked about and we're talking about this upside down topsy-turvy season where even the other teams that have played well don't have the pedigree the teams with the pedigree haven't played well kansas and gonzaga are the two teams that sort of jump out to you at the top of you know, the Ken Palm rankings where you're like, this team does actually have the the history and the success this season. And that's probably going to count for something this year. So I would not be shocked. Would you guys, I mean, I hate, again, hate to say it, hate to be the chalk bringer here, but would you guys be surprised if Kansas no, won? Neil Payne, bringer of chalk. Bringer of chalk. <laughs> bringer of chalk. Like the Josh Donaldson, <laughs> a, a really weird, gross version of Josh yeah, Donaldson. Yeah, chalk. No, of course I wouldn't be surprised if Kansas wins at all, but I'm not like... Who am I rooting for, though? Is that the question? Like, it's, it's, uh, who who would I feel good about yeah, yeah, yeah. seeing well, make yeah, a run? Yeah. I would feel good about Dayton. I'd feel good about San Diego State. Yeah. I mean, they're another team that had their brush with sort of the top of the rankings a few years ago, and it didn't sustain. Uh, and so seeing them back up at the top, make another run, I fondly remember picking them to go to the Final Four and then not having it happen. So That's, maybe this is the year. Yeah, you can't you can't let your team's past failures uh, stick with you this year. I did that. I do that all the time, yeah, though, with like Rick Barnes coached teams. You know, there are certain teams where you just know, like, they're going to f- let you down as a high seed. <laughs> 
Jeff, what about you? Which team do you have your eye on? Obviously, my eyes are generally um, drawn towards the Big Ten. I think the Big Ten this year is really interesting considering what are what are they projected to get right now? Ten, te- which obviously that's not all of them. They have more than 10, despite their name, but 10 <laughs> Really? Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> uh, we should mention that more. It we is really ridiculous. Should. We should talk about it every that show. That a team called the Big Ten has 14 <laughs> A teams. conference, yeah. <laughs> a conference, yeah. It's an interesting conference um, in the sense that the week-to-week schedule, there's just like, it, there's no easy games, especially with, you know, Maryland being so good and Penn State being good and then Illinois. Look, there, there's really... There's really no easy ounce anymore. And it's also it seems to be a conference. Except for Nebraska. We, Always Nebraska. Never forget Nebraska. Never forget Nebraska. Okay, fine. But also it's a conference where home court advantage seems to weigh in huge. And then you get to a tournament and all that's thrown out. So you start looking at the teams that have won games on the road and, and had success there. By the way, Kentucky is a team by, that has done very well on the road. So I'm, I'm also keeping my eye on them. Going back to the preseason rankings theory, which obviously Sarah doesn't like, Michigan State's super interesting because that's a team that was picked to be the best team in the country. And as we stated earlier, it's Izzo season. (laughs) So I'll certainly have my eye on them. If you go down a little lower, I I really think BYU is a fun team. That's a team with an incredible offense. I think Ken Palm has them as the the fourth best offense in the country, the best three-point shooting team in the country. They have seven losses, but three of those losses are Kansas, San Diego State, and Gonzaga, and they beat Gonzaga recently. So I think they're interesting, um, and that's right in that four or five seed range for a team that could very easily make a run if they get hot. I like Gonzaga a lot. I want Gonzaga to win it all one of these years. I just think it's such an interesting program and they're fun to root for. I like it when Cinderella's make good, you know, and they've made good over a long period of time. So I'll be keeping my eye on them, also rooting for them. Baylor is sort of, I worry that Baylor peaked a little too early. And I mean, because I like them and they're they're a tough team to play, but they seem to be on a little bit of a um, a slide right now. Another team from the Big Ten that I want to do well is Rutgers, because that is such a great story. They've lost three straight, so they might be done, too. Although maybe they're saving their peak for the oh, tournament. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, they're going to peak how it in the Big Ten I tournament. Think, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's not good either. Save your peak for the for the NCAA tournament. But I mean, they're, they're I mean, slated nice right now as 11 seeds, so us. they could be that... Yeah, and it's nice to see a sport in which Rutgers is not a complete laughingstock. Yeah, exactly. So that's nice. I mean, they're not, they're always good in women's basketball. That is true, yes. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the women's bracket real quick. That will be out on March 16th. The women's season have been pretty stable, though we've had two straight weekends of upsets, complicating things for the teams vying to be in the top 16, which means home games in the first two rounds. So there's definitely a little turmoil leading up to the women's bracket as well. Jeff, who should we be watching in the home stretch? With the three one seats obviously going to Oregon, South Carolina, and Baylor, I'm looking at the, who's the afterthought here, and we're going back to the Big Ten. We're going back to the Terps. I'm liking Maryland. They haven't lost since January 9th. Only four losses on the schedule. They started a little slow, high preseason rank, playing very well. So Big Ten power. What a banner year in College Park. Two possible top seeds in both tournaments men's and women's maryland's women's basketball team is has been good for a long time and their coach used to be an assistant at iowa state brenda freeze love her she's great but they're a pretty consistently good team i think 
where UConn ends up is interesting, too. I mean, they're always sort of this, you know, this hasn't been their season, obviously, but it's still pretty hard to count out a Gino Ariyama team. And they're going to be about a two seed? Yeah. Probably. So whatever one seed draws that two seed is obviously, I mean, I think this this played out last year. It's not when you want on Selection Monday. Yeah, it's yeah. deflating. It's, Selection Monday. it's <laughs> always deflating to be the one seed in whatever region yeah. UConn is Congrats, the two you're seed. the one seed. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, Neil, you know, we've talked a little bit about about the Oregon women's team. Is this Oregon and Sabrina Ionescu's year? Well, yeah, that's the team that I I think a lot of people have their eye on, and they are the best offensive team in college basketball uh, by a pretty wide margin if you look at it in um, something like the Massey ratings. That's what we like to look at uh, for uh, women's college basketball computer ratings. Um, And so, yeah, I think that that's a compelling story, and really entertaining team to watch. The only question is, you know, if it comes down to maybe like a tight game and they need to make a stop, not as good defensively as some of the other teams at the top of the country. Well, if it doesn't work out for Oregon, I'm hopeful that I'll still get to watch Sabrina play when she's the number one pick of the New York Liberty. Yeah, for her it's going to be like, you know, well, it'll be like, uh, is the the WNBA draft still like two days after the the championship game? So it'll be like an interesting month uh, and a half for her. Yeah, absolutely. For the record, I would have said Oregon, too, if I knew this was going to be a barrage of more chalk. (laughs) Chalk from from Neil. Neil. I was trying to go outside of the box. Wait, if you knew this would be more chalk from Neil, you obviously knew. I know. Why why did I need to learn that? I mean, I should have assumed that. But but the funny thing is, both of you guys went first and didn't mention Oregon. So I was like, are they going to talk about Oregon? All right. Because it's... I'm going to talk about Oregon. it's fairly obvious. It's fairly obvious. We were teeing you up. Yeah. I assumed that. That's my role here. Just (laughs) just being a team player. Two weeks until March Madness. Cannot wait. Let's pause for a quick word from this week's sponsor, Blue Chew. Plenty of men have performance issues at some point. If you or someone you know is trying to avoid it, go to bluechew.com. Bluechew.com has the first ever chewable with the same active ingredients as in Viagra and Cialis. You can take the chewables anytime on a full or empty stomach, and since they're chewable, they work faster. They're cheaper than the other options, and with Blue Chew's free online physician consultation and direct shipping, they're more discreet, too. No need to go to the doctor's office or even spend time waiting in line at the pharmacy. So here's the deal. Visit BlueChew.com and get your first order free when you use promo code TAKEDOWN. Just pay $5 shipping. Again, that's BlueChew.com, B-L-U-E-C-H-E-W.com, promo code TAKEDOWN. As we've addressed many times on the show, the NBA is all about narratives. And the 2019-2020 NBA season has had plenty of them, from the preseason battle of L.A. free agents to James Harden's recent dig at Giannis Antetokounmpo for, I I guess, being tall? Yeah, that was weird. Yeah, it was weird. (laughs) He's got a point. Another hotly discussed narrative has been the race for Rookie of the Year and performances by standout rookies Zion Williamson and Ja Morant. Williamson and Morant were the first and second picks in the draft, and while Zion was buzzed about in the months leading up to his debut, a knee injury sidelined him for much of the season. In the meantime, Morant has had a dynamic rookie performance, propelling the Grizzlies into the eighth spot in the Western Conference. But since his return, Zion is every bit as dominant as he was hyped to be, and has reignited the the who-will-win-the-rookie-of-the-year conversation. 
Here's 538 enthusiast Jalen Rose on Jalen and Jacoby on who he thinks will claim the title. It is not a competition for rookie of the year. John Morant, that is that is on lock. There's no way Design can win rookie of the year. But also that conversation to me truly minimizes the greatness that John Moran has put on display this year. Neil, what I think is interesting about that take is the claim that even bringing Zion into the conversation undermines Morant's performance this year. Why do you think Rose feels that way? And, and do we agree? Jalen's point is probably that, you know, Ja has been doing this all season and it would be a shame if we've we've already seen Ja be overshadowed to a large extent by Zion during college season last year. And then now it's like, oh, well, you know, Zion's out of the picture early in the season. Ja's playing his trade in Memphis. And then now it's like, oh, nope, Zion's back. He's the most electrifying rookie. Just to watch him play is to become almost like intoxicated with the power of Zion. He's a he's the one power of, the of most, Zion. One of the most sort of interesting players to watch um, in basketball. And the fact that I mean, we knew that his debut would be interesting for a lot of different reasons but the fact that he has been able to play really well against NBA competition coming off an injury that that you mentioned cost him a long period of time has just really intensified the Zion hype train and it changes the conversation so I think that is kind of the point and and it it makes sense to a certain degree because it's like do we reward someone for how they play at their peak and potentially you know, leading a team to a playoff bid from pretty far down in the standings, that's not nothing versus, you know, being consistent over a whole season. I think it's about balancing that. Yeah, I I don't disagree. I do think that it'd be hard not to talk about Zion in in the context of that race just because of of how fun he's been to watch. And of course, I mean, in we in the media have talked about him a lot as he's come back, but as fans, I think it's fun to watch him. And I, I don't feel like we should be faulted for saying, hey, maybe he should be in the Rookie of the Year conversation. But also look what he's done with his team. I mean, according to our rankings, the Pelicans were hovering around a, a playoff chance of 30 to 40 percent at the end of last year. Um, and now they're up at 60. I mean, he's he has like taken taken the reins and, and made them, you know, Right in the play I, right now, I actually think sixty percent is a little high, but um, both these guys have have these teams ahead of schedule and contending, and, and I think one of them, at least one of them, is going to probably be in the playoffs. So it's remarkable. Yeah, that's what's kind of fun too. Like they're competing; their teams are competing for a playoff spot too. So it's not just this like rookie of the year battle, which ultimately doesn't mean that much. It's actually about getting into the getting their teams into the playoffs. Where they will instantly get demolished by some team. Sure. <laughs> you know? It's not like right. it means that much more. But they made right. it. Right. Yeah. yeah. But they made it. That's yeah. what's important. Well and that's uh, that's another thing about the Pelicans is that to a certain degree our model kind of saw their surge coming like even when they were way back in the standings we gave them like almost a suspiciously high chance of making the playoffs because of two things they had one of the easiest schedules in the nba over the second half of the season and we factored in the the fact that zion who had this you know kind of historic college season that we talked about he projected to be a good player and then on top of that the fact that he has exceeded those expectations now that he has played in the nba sort of 
confirmed all of the things that we thought about the potential for the Pelicans, you know, before Zion came back. Yeah, definitely. So, so when comparing Zion and Ja, what metrics do we look at to sort of tell us who the better player has been this season? Well, I'm glad you asked. I mean, there's a <laughs> bunch of ways that you could look at it. Um, you know, the easiest way to look at it would be something like points per game. I feel like that's the way that most people will look at the race. And that's, I think, why maybe it's more complicated by the fact that Zion has come back is you have to look at one guy who has has about 18 points per game in 55 games in Ja Morant. And then you have someone who's averaging 24 points per game as a rookie, but only in 15 games. And so I think that's part of what what complicates it. We have ways as advanced metric uh, connoisseurs of balancing between sort of, you know, per minute performance or per game or whatever you want and sort of the total workload that you have. And that's something like wins above replacement where you can look at how much value someone added over a certain baseline. Now, if you do that and look at the best rookies this season by wins above replacement, the answer to the jaw versus Zion question is close. Ja is still ahead. Uh, he has 1.6 war. Zion has 1.2. Which is pretty... Cr- that's incredible, given how few games... Well, that's and, a cumulative and it says stat. Some, the, the other complicating factor is that Ja actually rates as being a below-average player slightly. You know, no fault on him as a rookie, but below-average by our rate statistic Raptor because his defense has been, you know, kind of poor as a rookie, uh, whereas Zion has a much higher per-minute rating and looks good as both an offensive and defensive player, and that's how he's able to zoom up the ratings. Now, I get the sense we're going to talk about this later, but Terrence Davis of the Raptors, nobody wants to hear this, is actually number one in rookie war in Raptor by, you know, a reasonable uh, margin over both Ja and Zion. He has 3.3 wins above replacement. Well, so why? But that's none of our business. Well, no. no well, no, I think that's an interesting question. <laughs> so why does Raptor like Terrence Davis? What about him is hitting that? He has the numbers to back up, you know, just looking at his box score uh, stats, uh, especially on offense. But I think the thing that puts him over the top, and maybe this is a little controversial, is that Raptor has this component of looking at how you make your team play when you're on the court. And he has had a substantially positive impact on the Raptors' efficiency on both offense and defense when he's in the game. And he's also played a lot of minutes. He's one of only uh, 17 rookies this year so far to have at least a thousand minutes. Uh, and so, you know, I think it's a combination of performance and a pretty high workload for a rookie that has contributed to it for him. The Raptors are good. Can we isolate whether they're good because of him or whether like he looks better because they are good? Well, Raptor at its core is trying to figure out how much of a contribution each player is making to his team. And so it's sort of a, it's a zero sum for the Raptors, the team, not the metric, uh, <laughs> in Raptor, the metric, not the team. <laughs> you know, you can only be as good as the credit for the team performance that kind of gets parceled out to you. And un- by that standard, uh, Terrence Davis is the fourth most valuable player on one of the, one of the best teams in the East. And he's splitting credit with, we, I think we talked about this when we were kind of scoping out the second half of the season. You know, it's not like there's a Kawhi Leonard on that team or some kind of superstar to try to kind of divvy up the credit with. It's Kyle Lowry, Fred, Fred Van Vliet, Pascal Siakam. Good players, but 
Terrence Davis's numbers sort of stand up next to them as being, you know, at least in the same neighborhood of contribution to the season that Toronto is having. So, Jeff, is Job versus Zion even the right question to be asking? I still think it's the right question. <laughs> the rookie of the year will be one of these two guys. And now, frankly, I think the recency bias and the sheer excitement of Zion has, has propelled him into this um, conversation. I mean, if you look at where he started, when he debuted, he was about a 7-1 to one chance of winning rookie of the year, and he hadn't even played yet, which is remarkable on face value. Uh, John Morant was a minus 625 on the money line, which is like a 84% probability. And now it's down to minus 250. Zion Williamson's about two to one plus 210. So it's, it's definitely narrowed. And, uh, I, I still think it can go either way. And frankly, you know, I think because of the nature of awards voting, whichever team makes the playoffs, um, is going to have a pretty big impact on this. If Zion, if the Pelicans make the playoffs and, and the Grizzlies don't, I mean, I think he, he very likely could win. And that's interesting that a um, like team performance, we know that that plays a big role in like MVP voting. But it doesn't always play a role in Rookie of the Year voting because the top rookies actually tend to like be on bad teams most of the time. Right. And it's sort of about like what kind of individual numbers are you putting it up. So this is like an interesting twist and different from like the usual Rookie of the Year conversation on top of the big disparity in, in the games between the two of them. We just had a story about undrafted players, rookies, and how many undrafted players are, are doing well in the NBA, but there are a bunch of undrafted rookies as well, including Terrence Davis. Terrence Davis, yeah. Which sort of tells you that he's not going to be rookie of the year. No rookie of the year has ever been an undrafted player. So. Yeah, and the, and the only player, I mean, it's a testament to Kendrick Nunn of the Heat, who ranks second among uh, rookies in Raptor War, that he's kind of in the conversation. I don't know what his odds are, Jeff, but he's... For, 40 to 1. I mean, he's got to be, you know, he's at least, he has odds. I think, I don't think he has much of a shot, though, no, given that he, he was, he was, he was undrafted a year earlier. Like he spent a yeah, year so in the Yeah, so people might not first. consider him a true exactly. rookie or whatever. Which who knows if that's the right way oh, to look at it. Oh, it's probably held that. against you. Uh, but it is worth saying that, uh, so among qualified uh, rookies this year, so Zion doesn't qualify yet um, for the basketball reference leaderboard, uh, John Morant, number one in points per game, 17.6 points per game. That's a big part of why that commanding um, you know, lead in the rookie of the year odds come from. Kendrick Nunn is second, 15.8 points per game. So he is at least delivering yeah. some of the hallmarks that we would expect, even if he doesn't have the draft pedigree to enter into the race with. You know, John Morant is is unquestionably fun to watch, and I do think that has a ton to do with it. I find it interesting that in our Raptor war, he's not the best rookie on his team. Brandon Clark is ahead of him in that. Now, I don't think Brandon Clark is probably going to overtake either Ja or Zion or Kendrick Nunn or Terrence Davis for Rookie of the Year. But it is sort of an interesting quirk in how we think about these these players. Should we talk about um, R.J. Barrett's case just to appease Tony in the control room? Or, or no? <laughs> Even Tony is shaking his head no. <laughs> He's third in, in oh points per game among rookies. We're, and has an absolutely atrocious yeah, his, Raptor, right? His Raptor, he's it's like... atrocious, right? Negative 1.2. Yikes. Whew. Oh, is that... That's it is not the worst. Slightly better than Jordan Poole. Yes. Your friend Jordan Poole. Your, 
Hey, hey, I didn't bring up Michigan when we were literally talking about Big Ten basketball. That's true. You don't need to go out of your way to take Jordan Poole pot shots. <laughs> Jordan Poole pot shots. So, all right, if it's Ja versus Zion, who do you got? Jeff, who do you like? I actually, traditionally, the, the, the fan of the shiny new thing, I remember when uh, I was lobbying for Steven Strasburg to go to the All-Star game, even though he'd only pitched in like four games <laughs> his rookie season, because... He was awesome, and people wanted to see him, and it, I thought it was ridiculous. But that was an all-star game. I do think I do think Jaws should be rewarded for playing a full season. I think we haven't seen Zion in this sort of back half of a season when the wear and tear and fatigue um, sets in, and I think that's worth something. So he would he would have my vote, barring some crazy finish. Well, I'm going to be a contrarian and say Zion should get it between the two because he's been better on a rate basis. At least he has more of a tangible impact on the game. You can see it when you watch him play. The excitement factor of him playing and go back to those odds that we're talking about for the two teams making the playoffs. Pelicans at 62% to make the playoffs. Grizzlies only at 10%. So I think that it's much more likely that Zion will have the narrative of he played the Pelicans into the playoffs, especially since, you know, their turnaround, it didn't coincide perfectly with him coming back, but it's like close enough that I think there will be people that, you know, uh, given their likelihood of making the playoffs, if they do, they'll kind of connect those dots and be like, Zion was the force that got them into the playoffs, and he's just so darn fun to watch. That's very bearish on the Grizzlies. I mean, they are currently in playoff position. I know they have a very, I think, one of the you know top three, top four hardest schedules down the stretch. But And I think that's the big, you know, that's today, a big they'd reason. They'd be a playoff team. Well, that's a big reason that it's looking at, and the fact that the Pelicans are just rate much higher at full strength now that they have Zion, who is a better player than John Morant. I want to be super contrarian and take like Matisse Tybal or someone. I Kendrick think, Nunn. Yeah, yeah. No. 40 to 1. <laughs> no, I think I like both of these players so much. But Zion, so if we operate under the assumption that the regular season isn't all that important and what happens is, you know, what's important is what happens in the postseason. That's sort of how we think about the NBA in general, it's not how we think about the awards, obviously. But then, like, who cares if he doesn't play the whole season if he's super good, propels his team, dynamic, dunks on LeBron James? You know, I'm spitballing here. I but think dunks on LeBron should actually be the decide. At thing, least right? the tiebreaker <laughs> category. That's, that's what we do. We get Can we add that? Zion on a court, LeBron standing by the bucket. Just under the basket. You can score on LeBron, you get rookie of the year. I'm totally comfortable that's with that. That's actually not a bad idea. I was going to say we should add to the Raptor page a column uh, of just like – counting dunks on LeBron. Most players (laughs) have zero. Let's get on that. (laughs) Let's pause for a quick word from this week's other sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash takedown. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job sites, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. You can even add screening questions to your job listing so you can filter candidates and focus on the best ones. Right now, to try ZipRecruiter for free, listeners can go to ZipRecruiter.com takedown. That's ZipRecruiter.com T-A-K-E-D-O-W-N. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash takedown. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. 
At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. As we said earlier, I'm just back from vacation. I spent last week in Florida at spring training. I caught four games in four days at four different ballparks. Super fun. My dad lives in Florida, and I've been going to spring training with him for the past 15 years or so, and I cannot recommend it enough. You get to watch real live baseball in February or March when I'm I'm usually desperate to watch baseball at this time of year. But you also get up close to the players. You can get autographs and watch batting practice and see cool catcher drills. It's a blast. So normally when I go to a baseball game, I like to keep score, but I don't bother at spring games because it's almost impossible. You'll have a decent number of regulars start a game, but this early in the season, they typically only play a couple of innings and then starts the parade of unknowns. The minor leaguers soon to be sent to their own camps, the up-and-comers who aren't quite ready for the show, the fourth and fifth outfielders fighting for a spot, the free agents on non-roster invites, etc., So how can you tell whether these guys are likely to make the team? Historically, it's been by their jersey numbers. Numbers above 60 haven't usually been worn by big league players. They've been reserved for the non-regulars in the preseason. This has become a running joke between me and my dad at spring training games. Whenever a new player enters a game, my dad takes a look at his number and says something like, Oh, look, number 86. He won't be in camp long. And in fact, 86 has never been worn by a big leaguer, but it is being worn by Twins minor league outfielder Jimmy Kerrigan, who I just saw enter a game in Florida. Jimmy Kerrigan is like the perfect name for a guy who will not be playing Major League Baseball in uh, in two weeks. Or he could have been playing in the 1920s. It's an old-timey name. Good luck to you, Jimmy Kerrigan. Uh, In one of the Twins games I was at, number 65 entered the game to pitch, and I thought, ah, another minor leaguer. And then I realized that it was Twins reliever Trevor May, who wears number 65 and is, in fact, a big league pitcher. So that made me wonder how many major leaguers are wearing numbers that we used to see only in spring training. So I went to baseballreference.com, where you go for such things, and I looked up all uniform numbers worn in the major leagues last year, and I charted them. For a podcast. For a podcast. <laughs> uh, we'll be posting this chart in our uh, story for with the podcast up on the site late uh, today, but you know, so you can see it if you want. But I'll explain it too, because that works well in an audio medium. So Trevor Mays, his number 65, as it turns out, is actually one of the most common jersey numbers. It was worn on 23 teams last season. That kind of surprised me. I didn't think that 65 would be worn that often. There was one player last year who wore zero. That was Adam Odvino of the Yankees. But then every subsequent number up to 68 was represented on between 14 and 25 teams, with the notable exception of number 42, which of course was retired league-wide for Jackie Robinson. There are no number 69s for obvious (laughs) reasons, because we're all children. And there were between 9 and 14 numbers, 70 through 74. But then the numbers really fall off a cliff. There were five 75s, two 76s, 677s for some reason, and then just one 78. There weren't more than three teams represented by a number again until number 99. For Wayne Gretzky. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Manny it? Ramirez. I guess. <laughs> right, right, right. 
There were four 99s last season, the most prominent of which, of course, was Yankee outfielder Aaron Judge. He got that number like most spring training attendees. He was assigned number 99 in spring of 2016. Now, usually when the big number guys get called up to the big leagues, they trade up for a better number, a number they wore as a kid or the number of a favorite player growing up, something like that. But Judge decided to keep his 99. He told New Jersey Advanced Media that it's a good number. It's a good number. I mean, I can't argue with that at all. Just look at it. Yeah, (laughs) it's very pleasing. Judge is only the 19th player to ever wear number 99. But even that is kind of an outlier. The other numbers in the 90s are very rare. There's only been one 98, one 97, three 96s, one 95. You get the idea. There's never been a 92 or an 89 along with that elusive number 86. The other thing at play here, though, is that some of these numbers we associate with major league players aren't used as much anymore. Only 14 teams last year employed the number 14, but nine teams have retired that number, including the Twins, for Kent Herbeck. Also the Reds for P. Rose. So <laughs> we got the Almost as good yeah, of a yeah, player exactly. as P. Rose. <laughs> so fully two-thirds of the teams that could have employed a number 14 did. The most popular number last season was a slightly higher number than I was expecting. It was number 50, worn by 29 players on 25 teams. 26 of those were pitchers, which kind of makes sense to me. Pitchers had traditionally worn slightly higher numbers. Only the Astros, Twins, Mets, Yankees, and Angels didn't have a number 50, and the Angels had retired the number. So maybe bigger... For who? Oh, so (laughs) for a guy named Jimmy Reese who had played for the Angels in the Pacific Coast League, but then he was like a, an equipment guy for the big league Angels, and they retired his number for them. He did play for the Yankees in the 20s, but he didn't wear 50 for the Yankees. So maybe bigger numbers will be used more as the smaller, more big league appropriate numbers are retired. Or maybe players will just want to use those higher numbers to break out of the mold of the ball players who went before them. But I hope we save some of those jersey numbers for the spring training hopefuls, if for no other reason than it, it helps me and my dad tell them apart. And, t- yeah, tell who the legit players are. Yeah, exactly. Although, occasionally get confused about actual big league players. <laughs> it's interesting, Sarah, because it's the opposite of, Neil, wait for it, hockey. <laughs> where weird high numbers, if I see a player I've never really heard of, a young player, and he's wearing a number in the 80s or 70s or 90s, I'm like, ooh, he must be good. Yeah. Look at the number he wore, because it's really... You really have to be good to wear one of those high, unusual numbers. And actually, the tricky thing is now finding high, unusual numbers that aren't claimed already by a former player. So, you know, uh, Lindros had 88, and Lemieux had 66, Gretzky had 99. Yager, 68. Uh, Crosby, Crosby had to come in and claim 87, and McDavid claimed 97. So you gotta, you, it, you can't even just pick any high number. You gotta find a one that doesn't have a Hall of Famer. Yeah. But back to the baseball. I cannot believe that you turned my rabbit hole into a hockey conversation. It was relevant. And I saw your face and you lost interest immediately. (laughs) Not going to lie. That's true. Turk Wendell was 99, right, Neil? Yeah, I I remember that. Yeah. I feel like there were some 99s in the wake of Major League coming out because Rick Vaughn. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. Mitch Williams wore 99. But I think there should be more high numbers. uh, Another cross-sport comparison uh, for football is the trend that, you know, receivers have been – 
traditionally they would always wear between 80 and 89 and then only use uh, like 10 through 19 under emergency circumstances. But if you look at the best receivers in football last season, almost all of them wore 10 through 19 and very few of them wore numbers in the 80s. Uh, and I think it started because they just wanted to be different. The the number, the people have, uh, receivers have said the numbers in the teens feel faster. They seem sleeker. Like it's a weird mentality around it, but I totally get it. Like when you look at the numbers. Uh, and so I wonder if, you know, the, the impulse to be different and sort of branch out and, and have like, it's intention grabbing when a, you know, a pitcher comes in and he's got like 75 or uh, Barry Zito. I think he was 75. Uh, and, and you're just like, oh, that player must be either special to your point, Jeff, about the hockey players with the high numbers or just like weird, you know, they want to be, they want to be noticed. He's got personality. He's got personality. <laughs> Which, he wore a weird number. Well, and in a lot of, in baseball history, that hasn't been like a good thing. Like you'd get noticed that in, for having a different number in the wrong way. And I do think a lot of, there are a lot of players in the major leagues who chose a number of their favorite player which could be then problematic if that number gets retired and they play on that same team like Xander Bogarts has a number two because Derek Jeter was his favorite player growing up I think that does inform a lot of choices about numbers I kind of love that Aaron Judge was just like "Eh, whatever (laughs) he has said like his favorite number is like 35 or something which is a weird (laughs) a a weird number to have as your favorite number. Be a weird thing to say ever. Like, why? What's but, your favorite number, Sarah? Not to put you on the spot. 17. 17? I like, <laughs> I like that number. <laughs> I don't have a I should have said number. 7 for Joe Meyer. No, but I think 17 player. really <laughs> caught on to something subconscious for you. I know, I know. It just came out. What's your favorite number, Neil? Ooh, uh, I would say 9. Nine. That's yeah. a good number. Did you? What was your number when you played sports? Well, so in baseball, I wore nine. Uh, but in basketball, fun fact: in in middle school and high school basketball, you can't have a number that's higher than uh, what a referee can display on using hands. So you can't have a number that includes six through nine. Uh, Maybe zero has got to be in there. They just use a fist, I guess. Uh, and so I had to change to the number five uh, in order to um, – and I actually got like a foul. I remember one time in, I don't know, sixth grade or something like that, I, I wore the number nine and because uh, it was my baseball number. And I got a, a technical for an illegal number in a middle school basketball game. And so next game I had to change to five. Wow. Yeah. That's, Isn't wow. that wild? Yeah. That's a rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I sort of, I sort of put that on your coach, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. nobody told me. You can't Nobody's be the young Neil Payne yeah. on that. Yeah, I agree with that. Jeff, what number did you wear as a kid? Well, I only played soccer among team sports, so and I wore two because I was a defenseman. I it, it was not because of Derek Jeter. I was going to say you love Jeter. <laughs> yeah. He was not a defenseman. Uh, for the record, Tim Tebow wears eighty-five. So does that mean your father would? Would just dismiss him as a a non major league player. He would, and rightfully as he so. Should. Yeah, <laughs> him and everyone else watching him. Um, when I was a kid, when I played very bad <laughs> softball shortstop, I was number eight because my favorite player was Gary Gaetti of the Minnesota Twins. Wow, I was number eight. Yep, I was always number eight when wow. I was a kid. Yeah, but it's not my favorite number. 
anymore. You know, what was Pat? It's been what a while. was Patrick Mahomes' number with uh, Pat, Pat Mahomes senior? <laughs> senior, that's a good question. With, he was uh, not my favorite player. <laughs> he was not your favorite twin. I don't think he was Pat Mahomes Junior.'s favorite twin. No, I don't think, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah I no, think. I think it was Tori Hunter. Anyway, I think that will do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and be sure to review and rate the show. It helps other people discover the program. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.